0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we do have today's PowerPoint notes in our Google Drive folder that you can access through your bulletin if you would uh, like to pull those up and have those available to follow along as we work through chapter 1 today. You'll remember over the last couple of weeks, we kind of stepped away from the actual text in Revelation, and we've spent some time um, examining the return of Jesus and um, what Scripture communicates about the return of Jesus, whether He's coming back for His church, for then a time to ensue after that for God to uh, judge Israel here on this earth and to judge those that have persecuted Israel, or whether Jesus is coming one more time At the end of the age, to consummate um, the end of all things and to usher us into eternity. Told you that it's important for us to understand what we believe about it um, because we have the responsibility to pass on encouragement as well as to receive encouragement um, in regards to the passages that talk about Jesus coming back. So it's worth us wrestling through and trying to figure out what we believe about these passages. Told you that I land on not believing in a rapture because of the relationship to Israel or Israel has with the church. That I told you it's kind of a, um, it's a swing point, basically, that pending how you view Israel and the church, it will lead you into either believing in a rapture or not believing in a rapture. And so um, my belief is that Israel and the church have become one based on some of the teachings in the New Testament. And we looked last week specifically at 1 Thessalonians 4.0. And 5, and talked about the return of Jesus from those passages, and we looked at 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, we talked about how in both places Paul is addressing some issues that, that need to be addressed, that there's a lack of information, a lack of hope, and a lack of clarity about Jesus coming back, and so in 1 Thessalonians 4, he wants to basically help the church to see and understand that dying Christians... Christians that die before Jesus comes back will enjoy the same great privileges as living saints when Jesus returns, that there's no disadvantage for those that pass away before the second coming of Jesus. And then in 2 Thessalonians uh, 1 and 2, we see that there's this injustice that's perceived, that uh, evil seems to be winning, that Christians are being persecuted and killed for their faith, and so it seems to be uh, unfair and we said that when jesus comes back he flips the tables and he makes all things right second thessalonians 2 talks about a great time of deception that is coming and how we can be on guard against that um, and how ultimately the greatest plans of evil that the world has ever known will be frustrated by god's sovereignty and i challenge you with the application that uh, you need to work through personally what you believe about the return of Jesus so you can get the necessary hope and offer the necessary encouragement that other believers need. And so I would encourage you to continue to wrestle with these truths, not to believe them just because I've told you this is what I believe, uh, not to simply hear it and then be done with it, but to really grasp it in such a way that you can explain it to others. If the conversation were to come up at work about Jesus coming back, would you be able to articulate your beliefs about the return of Jesus. We come to Revelation chapter 1 verse 9 and pick back up in the text and so I want to start reading in verse 9 to set the stage for what I believe God has for us this morning. It says in verse 9, I John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things you have seen, those uh, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Our hero and our victor is the title of our sermon this morning, our summary sentence for today. In the midst of suffering and hardship, the church can look to the risen Savior and receive encouragement to persevere in worship by seeing him as one who conquers all of our greatest fears. In the midst of suffering and hardship, the church can look to the risen Savior and receive encouragement to persevere in worship by seeing him as one who conquers all of our greatest fears. I've got the rest of the notes up there. Our kid's summary sentence is, um, Jesus is our hero because he conquers our greatest fears. Jesus is our hero because he conquers our greatest fears. Fears. We're going to see in this book, obviously, that suffering and hardship uh, is what the church is destined for, but the church can look to the risen Savior. And we're going to see uh, as we work through the book of Revelation that the resurrection of Jesus is this key point of worship throughout the book, Um, seeing him as the one who died and who is alive forevermore. Um, He's the slain lamb that is worshiped in heaven by the saints that have been killed for their faith. And so the church looks to the risen Savior. The church receives encouragement to persevere in worship by seeing him as one who conquers all of our greatest fears. We're going to see that right off the bat here in chapter one before we make any other progress into uh, the book of Revelation. Some initial thoughts that I think we see right off the bat in this chapter. First of all, I think John wants us to understand, based on Jesus giving him this vision, so it wasn't John that made this decision. Jesus is the author of this book. Jesus is the one that decides this is important. I think Jesus believes right off the bat it's important for us to see an accurate picture of who he is before we see anything else in this book. I think, I think it's really important. Jesus says, I want to give you the end of the story up front, so that anything else that you experience in this book pales in comparison to who I am. You see here, you see just a, a, an image of Jesus, a vision of Jesus. We're going to kind of break down and see some of the key components of what's going on here. Um, but I think the key is to see Jesus as being more important than anything else in this book. Because if you don't have a clear picture of Jesus, um, the trouble that comes in this book would seem hopeless. Without him, um, I don't know how many of you have been through uh, the tribulation trail or the judgment journey. Um, some of these churches that put on these type of ministries around Halloween time, where basically you're meant to see uh, kind of a picture of, of the Book of Revelation, and you see the horrors and the trials and the tribulations. Um, I participated in one up at school. It was kind of a uh, a house that was meant to, to reveal death in different ways and different forms. And then typically at the end of those journeys or those walks, at the end of it, it's when you see Jesus and there's a, there's a gospel appeal to, to repent and to turn to Christ. I don't know of any of them that showed Jesus at the very beginning. You know, even at Snowbird, they do this big uh, revelation skit is what they call it. And basically it's a picture of Satan, his forces persecuting the church. Um, and, it, and it's really horrific. I mean, uh, if it wasn't based on scripture... Uh, I wouldn't show it to my kids. But because it's based on Scripture, uh, Abram and A.J. have both been a part of it. The McLeod kids have seen it at their, at their early age. Uh, because Jesus is shown to be the hero and the victor of the story. But he's not shown to be that until the very end. And so for young kids who watch it, I mean, it's kind of terrifying. You see, uh, you see these, these horsemen ride in, and you see these uh, demons come in, and you see just the persecution and the killing of, of uh, saints. And you see him get hanged, and, and there's this, just this turmoil and this, this hopelessness about it. And then Jesus rides in, and, uh, and his forces come in and, and, and wipe out Satan. But you don't get that picture up front. Um, I think it's extremely helpful that we get this picture of Jesus up front before we journey into the book. I mean, even here at the end of chapter one, it says that, that he has the keys to death, the keys to Hades. Well, why is that, why is that helpful? Because in Revelation chapter six, Especially as a kid who went through tribulation trail and judgment journeys and some of those things, probably the scariest part of it for me, oftentimes, was the four horsemen that you got to see. Um, And different churches do it differently, but I mean, just kind of a a scary rider on a horse that that kind of portrays an attitude of hopelessness. If you jump to Revelation chapter six, these seals are being opened. it says in verse 7 of Revelation 6, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. See, that could be a scary scene right there, except for the fact that we've already read Jesus has the keys to death in Hades. Like, These guys are instruments of Jesus. Now, he's not the author of sin. He's not the author of this evil. But ultimately, their authority, their ability to do anything that they do comes from Jesus. Jesus has the keys to both of these things. Um, And so the horrificness of death and Hades in this chapter you know, it says it's riding on a pale horse. It's because, the, I mean, it pales in comparison to Jesus, right? Like Jesus has authority over this evil. And I think John wants us to see Jesus before we get into any parts of the book of Revelation so that we can see what I told you a couple of weeks ago. He's the scariest thing in the book, right? Like he's the, he's the most powerful being in the book. And if you're not on his side, he's scarier than anything else you can read about in the book of Revelation. And it's only because John is on the side of Jesus that Jesus can put his hand on him at the end of chapter one and say, fear not, fear not. Um, you're one of mine. Now, if you weren't one of mine, fear a lot, <laughs> fear a lot because, because I'm the scariest thing that you're gonna see in this vision. But he's able to comfort him because while he would be scary if John was not on his side, John has been redeemed and John is one of his closest friends and, and he can put his hand on him and say, fear not. Seeing Jesus is more important than anything else in this book. Secondly, uh, the vision, vision of Jesus is meant to comfort and not to scare. I think that's important for us to grasp that Jesus and all of his glory in this picture it's meant to be a comforting picture to us. It's meant to be a comforting picture to us, not to scare us. Now, John is immediately scared and fearful and prostrate on the ground, but Jesus comes in and says, fear not, fear not. I wanna encourage you. What you're seeing should not lead you to be fearful, but instead to be encouraged. And we'll talk about why that's the case as we work through um, the material this morning. Number three, Revelation one twenty informs us of the symbolism to come. Right off the bat, Jesus tells us The stars and the lampstands aren't real, right? They represent things, and he tells us what they represent, right? He says the stars represent the angels of the churches, the lampstands represent the churches. Um, And so it clues us into the fact that, okay, things that we're going to see and read about in this book aren't necessarily what they're portrayed to be, that they represent things. And so that kind of leads us into a mentality of symbolism as we work through this book. Um, it's, it's why we see numbers symbolically in this book, because Jesus kind of tells us right up front, hey, there's some things in this book that, that aren't what they really are. They represent things. Um, and then number four, the book contains relevant material for all believers, not just for the believers at the time that John wrote, not just for the believers that are here when Jesus comes back. Jesus tells them, verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this. It has relevance for all time. There are things that are relevant for every believer leading up to the return of Jesus. Not all of it's in the future. Not all of it has already happened. Um, some of the things still lie in the future. Um, and so there's relevance for every reader until Jesus comes back. Um, so some of the initial thoughts that, um, that I jotted down. We get back into um, the text in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Number one in our notes today, we approach the future as a family. We approach the future as a family. For our kids, our church is our family. There's great hope that I think John communicates right off the bat here as he relates himself to these churches that will read this book as a brother, as a fellow partner in the faith. We're, we're, we're family, um, and that ought to provide great encouragement and hope to us as we look into the future, as we approach the future, as we seek to endure into the future, that we don't go into it alone. We don't go into it alone. And that's number one in our notes underneath that. We are not alone in our faith. The experiences of Christianity are shared by all believers. And what's so encouraging is to think about the fact that we are part of the church that John is talking about 2,000 years ago when he writes this book, right? Like, Like the church that was enduring at that time is the same church that we're a part of. We are grouped in with these people. Um, we're not an isolated church of, of 40 to 50 people right here this morning. We're, we're a church that belongs to a bigger church. We're a church that belongs to a, a church that's made up of generations uh, throughout all ages leading up to Jesus coming back. We're not alone in our faith, and that's not just a cliche term to use that, hey, we're, fa- we're like family around here. Scripture, scripture says that we should view it that way, that the relationships that we enjoy in this room within this local church should be really deep and meaningful. In Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. We know that the gospel oftentimes divides families. Maybe not so much in our culture, but in other cultures as people come to Christ, oftentimes it divides families. Um, it leaves them in a state where they lose their mother or father who won't accept the faith in Jesus that their child is portraying. It oftentimes divides families. But the encouragement that Jesus offers to his disciples is that when you come to faith in Christ, you enjoy a family-type relationship with those that are following Jesus as well. Our relationships are meant to be deep and meaningful. And we could pause right there and just stop and talk for a while about the ramifications of what that means in this local church. I mean, this, is, this has got to be still a learning process for us because um, there, there is still growth that can happen in every church, including this church that we would love each other and care for each other in the same way that we would love and care for our own immediate family, right? Some of us are really great at loving our families, but it's still a learning process to know that we're supposed to love other people within this church at that same level. We're to see each other as a family. Deep, meaningful relationships is what Jesus promises to his disciples. We're not alone in our faith, and John finds hope in that and wants to offer hope to other churches that are reading this book by identifying himself as the brother, as a partner, right? He's not a disciple, he's not an elder, he's not an apostle here, he's a brother. He highlights an important relationship that we all get to enjoy together within the church. Number two, not only are we not alone in our faith, we're not free from suffering. We're not free from suffering. It says um, he's our brother and our partner, not just in the church, but in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that comes with following Jesus. We're not free from suffering. John tells us that he's in Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's enduring persecution. He's been banished to this island that's really kind of off the coast of Ephesus, off the coast of Asia Minor. He's been relegated there because he won't keep his mouth shut about Jesus. Right, And so the, the, the Roman Empire has said, let's, let's put him out to pasture, basically. Let's, let's isolate him to limit his contact with others about the resurrected Jesus. His lot is due to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Christians should expect suffering for obeying Jesus. He says, this is due to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, meaning that when we choose to live by God's word, when we choose to fight sin and we choose to testify of the resurrected Christ, it leads to suffering. Now, you know, we talked this morning, you know, what what are the reasons that we suffer? It, it, It should be for this, right? This isn't, they're not suffering because they're being disciplined by a heavenly father that loves them for their sin, right? Like they're being They're being attacked and persecuted because of their proclamation of Jesus and his word. And we talk about, well, you know, that doesn't really happen here. And and I think we have to filter that through how faithful are we in communicating the word of God, living by it, calling other people to live by it, and testifying about the resurrected Christ. Because it it confronts people when we do that uh, accurately when we do that faithfully to what God's word has called us to do, when we share the gospel and call people to repent of their sins, it would lead to division. It would lead to division in our families. It would lead to division at our our workplaces. And it would potentially create more suffering and possibilities of more persecution if we were more faithful to do so. We'll talk more about that towards the end. Um, We're not free from suffering and If there's a lack of suffering, I think we first have to evaluate: is there a lack, is there a lack of the Word of God and a testimony of Jesus present in our life? That's what should lead to suffering, by living by the Word of God and by testifying about Jesus. Christians, so you know, we talked this morning, you know, kind of relating this to a new believer, right? We're talking to a new believer. We're working through discipleship with them. We're talking about working through it with our kids. We should teach our kids, we should teach new believers to expect suffering. That when they come to Christ in faith, they should expect a heightened attention from the enemy. This phrase, word of God and the testimony of Jesus, it's used three other times in the book of Revelation. Each time that it's used, it's used in reference to people being persecuted on account of this. That if we teach our kids to follow Jesus and to live by his word and to tell others about him, We need to follow that up with expect to be hated for it, expect to be persecuted for it, expect to suffer for it. Because if you do it the way that scripture calls you to do it, it's going to possibly lead to some of these things. And if we don't tell them about it, they go out and do these things and then they're met with suffering and they can easily wilt in their faith because it's like, whoa, I'm trying to be obedient and it's not fair because I'm suffering for it but they should expect it. In fact, they should prepare for it. In Revelation chapter six, verse nine, that phrase, the the word of God, testimony of Jesus. Revelation chapter six, verse nine says, um, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. People that had chosen to live by the word and to share Jesus with others had been slain For their faith. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God, who keep the word of God, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The enemy, the enemy doesn't like this, right? The enemy doesn't like people who live by the word of God and tell others about the resurrected Jesus, and he seeks to stop their voice by killing them. He slays their spirits. He slays their bodies. He, he goes after them in anger, becomes furious, and makes war against them. In uh, Revelation 20, verse 4, Again, the enemy mounts against this type of behavior, this type of lifestyle. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. We're not free from suffering. We should expect it, especially if we're going to live faithfully to the word of God and to testify about the resurrected Jesus. Number three, we're to focus on the coming kingdom. So John says, I'm I'm your brother, I'm your partner in tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He says, you're going to suffer, but it's important that we keep our eyes on the kingdom because we are participating. We are partners in something that is still to come. And he says, we're to be patiently enduring this, waiting upon this kingdom. We endure it, waiting upon it. We advance the kingdom by our patient suffering. We advance the kingdom of God by our patient suffering. A couple of passages that point us to this. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, It says uh, that um, Paul and, and his, uh, uh, his group was going around uh, encouraging churches that he had helped plant. Verse 22, it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Right, like he's preparing them. He says, look, we want you to live by the word of God. We want you to tell people about Jesus. You're going to suffer for it. You're going to go through tribulations for it. Good news, this is the way to the kingdom. This is the road. This is the path to eternal life. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Second Timothy 3, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, expect it, endure it, hang on, the kingdom is coming. The glory of Jesus becomes clear when saints show that Jesus is better than wealth and better than health, even to the point of death. We show Jesus to be great when we're persecuted, when we suffer, when we endure to the very end. In um, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 John says, this is what I'm going to partner in in with you. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. We endure to the very end. That's what we're called to do as believers. So the implication for us, we are called to endure suffering as a sign of our hope in the kingdom we are called to endure suffering as a sign of hope in the kingdom. Now, the key that I wrote down in my notes for this is that the key is we have to do this as a family, right? So why do we suffer? We suffer because we try to align ourselves with the word of God and we try to testify about the resurrected Jesus and the enemy hates that. The enemy hates that. The enemy doesn't wanna see people rescued, right? Back to Revelation or Genesis three, right? Genesis three, Satan stole Adam and Eve in his mind. And was going to uh, basically own the offspring of man. Jesus shows up. God shows up at that scene and says, "By the way, um, I'm rescuing these people back to me, right? Like I'm going to create enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and and um, uh, your seed and her seed. I'm going to send somebody to crush your head. Well, well, Satan doesn't like that, right? Like Satan doesn't want to lose." So when we start testifying of the resurrected Jesus, Satan doesn't care about Jehovah's Witnesses sharing their false information. He doesn't care about Mormons sharing their false information, right? Like more power to them, more deception to them. But when a Christian gets serious about talking about the resurrected Jesus, that's when the enemy steps in and says, we have to cut this off. We have to start killing if necessary to cut this off. And so Christians make Jesus look great when we endure through that type of suffering, but we do it as a family, right? Like we don't do this individually, we do this as a family. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 3, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God.'" For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul has this idea of we've got to do this together. As we walk through sufferings, we have to comfort and encourage each other. When we come out of sufferings, we're now better equipped to help someone else who goes through that type of situation. He says we do this together. We endure to the very end by seeing ourselves as a family. So we approach the future. Whatever we're gonna see in Revelation, we take comfort in the fact that we go into it together as a family. But number two, we approach the future with a hero. Right? It would be one thing if we just said, hey, we're going in this together. You know, Nobody wants to go into a scary situation by themselves. Um, like it's nice to have people that go in with you. Um, We get to go in as a family, but we're preceded by a hero, right? We're preceded by one who controls everything that we find in the book of Revelation, right? You you think about like um, going down into like a dark basement, right? Like you, you want someone to go in front of you a lot of times, right? Like, hey, you go explore that. You go see what's down there. I'll be right behind you, right? I remember as a kid, there were times... Maybe not as a kid, maybe even older than a kid. There were times where I was scared to go into our basement um, where we lived in Fayetteville. I remember being woken up in the night. We were getting ready. I think we were going to Florida the next day um, and cousins were spending the night and I got woken, all girl cousins and me were spending the night like we're sleeping in the living room. I got woken up um, by my cousin Melanie and she said, there's somebody in the basement. She's like, I know I turned all the lights off and there's a light on and somebody's down there. And so I'm kind of, wait, I'm terrified. Like I, I think I was in late high school or college and I was like, I'm not going down there, I'm not. And then we went and woke my mom up and made her go down there um, and check it out. I'm still kind of that way. Like I'm still in the growth process of not letting fears conquer me. But there's something that, that's relieving to say, I'm gonna send somebody in front of me, right? Like somebody who I feel like has more authority or, or whatnot than me. And that's what we get here in this picture. We go into it as a family, not alone, but we go into it with a hero who goes before us and that's the picture that that John gets from Jesus in this vision um It says that i was on the I was in the spirit on the lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, "Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. We approach the future with a hero. Real quick, some descriptions here about the church and about Jesus. First of all, Jesus, what we see in this chapter here is that he's clothed with power and majesty that leads to awe and terror, right? Like the picture that we get of Jesus if we really meditate on it briefly and just kind of see what some of these things mean, it is a a terrifying picture to some degree because Jesus possesses such great authority, such wisdom, such omniscience. He sees everything, he knows everything. In his majesty and his power, it leads to awe and terror. What we also see here is that he's both God and man. He's both God and man. Like you have to kind of pause and remind yourself, this is the Jesus that John walked around with for three years in his ministry. Right? Like this is the Jesus that, that he sat and ate with and, and did ministry with and walked, watched Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount, like this is the same Jesus that he was with. It's the same Jesus that he describes in First John, right Like John, who wrote Revelation also wrote first, second, third, John, says that which was from the beginning, verse one of First John one, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life, talking about Jesus. The life was made manifest, we've seen it, we testify to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and it was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John's like, this is my, this is my best friend, right? Like this is my best friend and I watched him ascend into heaven and then... Pending the authorship date of Revelation, we're talking 20, 30, 40, 60 years maybe since he last saw Jesus, and now he's reintroduced to his best friend here, and he turns around and sees a picture that leaves him in awe and terror as he sees Jesus in this glory. But he's both God and man. Um, He's he's linked with the the humanity, the the, the human that, that John saw walking around, But he's also linked with a term used in the Old Testament, the Ancient of Days. In Daniel chapter 7. All right, this is the only one I'm going to read because I've got several here. And I don't want us to run out of time. Daniel chapter 7. And if you want some of these other references, I can give you them. But in Daniel chapter 7. You can see the parallels here to this vision that Daniel gets to the one that John gets in Revelation. But in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days. God the Father took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment. The books were opened. You can read in uh, Daniel chapter 10, Isaiah 41, Isaiah 44, 48, Deuteronomy 32, uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse seven, all of these references describe God the Father the way that Jesus is described here in Revelation one. The idea of his, his hair being white and him sitting on a throne and, and fire proceeding from him. These are all descriptions that Old Testament prophets saw of God the Father. Because Jesus comes on the scene here later in Daniel chapter seven. So it's not Jesus that they're seeing, it's God the Father that they're seeing. And now in Revelation chapter one, these same qualities are being attributed to Jesus. And it connects him to the Ancient of Days that in ways that we don't always understand, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit make up the triune God. And there's deity that Jesus possesses, not just humanity. He's not just the human that walked around with John. He's the God of John, right? Like he's the God, not just the best friend, but the God of John. And so Jesus is connected with the Ancient of Days. I think it's, it's important to, to mention this. Um, this is probably not what Jesus looks like on an everyday basis in heaven. I don't, I don't think John's intention here is to tell us what Jesus is wearing in heaven right now. This isn't the picture that we seem to get of the resurrected Jesus when he's walking around on this earth before he ascends into heaven, right? He's in his glorified body. He's recognizable. Um, people are talking with him, fellowshipping with him, walking with him to Emmaus, right? Um, This probably falls into the symbolic realm of the book of Revelation. Now, I may be wrong about this. We may show up, Jesus comes back, and he looks just like this, an an old-looking man that comes with great wisdom and great authority and great strength. So one who portrays all the goodness of age without the decay that sin brings to the body. That may be what Jesus looks like, but more than likely, this is symbolic because the things that are described here about Jesus aren't meant to tell us what he looks like They're meant to tell us what he is like, okay? It's not meant to tell us what color his hair is. It's meant to tell us that he comes with all wisdom and all knowledge because of all of his experience. He's the first and the last, right? He's been there from the very beginning. He will be there till the very end. He brings all the experience to the table. We think about wisdom. We think about experience. Those that have experienced it oftentimes have the greatest wisdom. Jesus has all the possibilities of wisdom attached to him. It's not so much that his hair is white, it's that he comes with all wisdom to the table, all right? Um, The description of the church, what we see back here in Revelation. So we see Jesus in this uh, glorified state, and we see a description of him that describes what he is like and how we should see him and view him. Uh, The church here is pictured as um, a a lampstand. Um, I think the, the fact that the church is being written to here, the seven churches, and they're written, they're ordered in such a way that when somebody would take this letter of revelation, they would go in this order and drop it off to these churches in this order along the path. So that's kind of why the order is here. Um, but these represent churches of all times. Right, like this book isn't just for these seven churches; it's for all of us. And so, we're going to learn a lot from examining these seven churches. But the church is pictured as a lampstand. Um, we know from other passages of Scripture, we're called to shine as light. Matthew five fourteen and fifteen. The same word for lampstand is used there for the church as is used here. So, our job as a church is to lift up the light of Jesus and shine Him forth. Um, that's the picture we see here in Revelation. Uh, Daniel 12, three talks about our responsibility to shine as soul winners. Philippians 2, 15 through 16, uh, kind of the same thing. All right, um, we approach the future with a hero for kids. Jesus is our hero. Number one, we have a hero who remains with us. We have a hero who remains with us. Matthew 28, 20, uh, the great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Big promise that's attached to that is, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age, right? Jesus stays with his disciples Jesus stays with his churches. And that's the image that John gets here. It says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And where's Jesus? Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. He's in the presence of the churches. He's right there mixing it up with them. God is present with all churches and knows what is going on in each church. And it's not because he read the website, right? Like Jesus doesn't know what churches want to be known about them. He knows the intricate details of what that church really is. I could tell you things about Crossroads Church. I could tell you things about Southcrest. I could tell you things about Legacy. I could tell you things about those churches. I don't know those churches. I don't know those pastors. I don't know the people of those churches. Most of my knowledge would be website type knowledge. Jesus is going to confront these churches and say, here's who you really are. No matter what your website says, here's who you really are. And what's crazy is that these churches get to read about other churches in their area. I mean, think about it. Let's say if this was written to the church at Crossroads and the church at Sovereign Hope and the church at Legacy, I mean, all the dirty laundry gets aired out here in a few minutes as you read through the book of Revelation. God says, we're going to confront it, we're going to fix it, because we're all a family, we're all on the same team, we're all part of the big church. doesn't matter who's failing more or succeeding more, we all got to get on the same page and be the right type of light. We have a hero who remains with us. He remains with each church despite their struggles, sins, and failures. He possesses and protects the churches and their leadership. John 10, 28 talks about us being in the hands of Jesus and nobody being able to pluck us out of those hands, right? What do we see in the picture of his hands? We've got churches in his hands and then we've got angels in his hands, angels of the churches. There's a lot of debate as to what, what are these angels? Um, some of the, the suggestions uh, that these are real angels, that these are the pastors of the churches, that these are the individuals that will be the messengers to deliver the, uh, the letter to the churches, or that it's simply a personification of the church. I gotta tell you, I've kind of landed on this being um, real angels. It, It doesn't make sense to write letters to angels, but every other time they're used in the book of Revelation, it's talking about angelic beings. So it would be a deviation from the norm. Jesus says these are the angels of the churches, at the end of the day, I don't think it matters too much exactly who's being talked about here. Obviously, Jesus holds the pastors of the churches in his hand, just like he would the angels, just like he holds the churches. Um, but there is some speculation as to what we actually actually mean by angels here. But there are some verses that talk about us having potentially angels assigned to us. Maybe our church has an angel, and maybe our church helps or this angel helps guide our church. Um, we're not told explicitly, but the idea here is that Jesus possesses and protects. Churches and their leadership. Number two, we have a hero who serves as our priest. Sorry for the extra s there. We have a hero who serves as our priest. The clothing that Jesus is wearing in this description—it's reminiscent of the high priestly um, robe that was worn. Exodus twenty-eight eight talks about it, um, and so it's a reminder to us that Jesus is our priest. He is the one who inter- intercedes for us. He's the one that understands us. Hebrews seven. 25 reminds us of that as well. He is a hero who serves as our priest. Number three, we have a hero who exudes wisdom. We have a hero who exudes wisdom. The picture here is a picture of a Jesus who is infinitely old, that he's been around all the time, um, that he, he brings to the table, as I've said already, great wisdom experiential type wisdom that is unmatched he's infinitely old and infinitely wise this is the king that we serve this is the hero that we hope in we have a hero who sees all and knows all he sees every corner and he reads every heart lest you think uh sometimes we you know we may picture someone in their older age not being capable of doing much right like they're kind of propped up, and they're sitting there, and they they have very little left to offer. That's not that's not Jesus here. He's pictured in his old age again to show his wisdom, but his his eyes burn with fire, right? Like he's he's not he's not sleepy, he's not lazy, he's not he's not done, right? His eyes exude fire, and and they burn, and and it reminds us that Jesus sees everything. For some, that's good. For others, that's bad. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, it's bad. It says, um, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. This is when he comes with his armies to kill those who persecute the elect. I mean, he just he comes in devastation in Revelation chapter 19 and he comes with those burning eyes of fire. He sees everything, he reads every heart Going back to 2 Thessalonians 1, he makes all things right. Nothing gets by him. He knows all of the injustice and he comes to bring justice to those situations. Number five, we have a hero who is holy above all things. The picture here of these feet that are of brass, his feet represent purity and power. Number six, we have a hero who possesses the authority to judge and protect. His voice resounds with authority. First off, we see his voice being like a trumpet. His voice isn't a trumpet. His voice is like a trumpet. And that's where a lot of the symbolism is seen here. He's like a lot of these things, right? Like his hair was white like wool. It's not wool hair. His voice was like a trumpet, right? His voice was like these these rushing, resounding waters. And it communicates authority in his voice. But we also see protruding out of his mouth a sword, which again kind of goes back to the idea. I'm hoping this isn't what Jesus looks like on a on a daily basis because it, it really can be terrifying. Like this is why John is prostrate because I mean he's got this man before him who who brings all wisdom of age but brings all the the um the vigor of youth. Right? These eyes that are burning with fire and a sword is coming out of his mouth, a sword that can judge and protect. Um Hebrews four twelve talks about god's word and how it can cut and how it can heal Um, jesus comes to save his church and to punish those who are persecuting the elect that's the picture in revelation 19 that we were referencing that jesus comes with that great sword to bring judgment but that's also going to bring healing to those of us that are believers it says and i saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army You read Revelation 19, at the beginning of the passage, there's a bunch of people eating together in heaven, and then at the end, there's a bunch of people being eaten by birds, right? Those of us that are on Jesus' side, we eat with Jesus. Those of us that aren't on Jesus' side, we're eaten in the end, right? Like we perish, he comes and brings judgment, and the sword comes from his mouth and brings great judgment and justice upon this earth. Right? It's scary for some. It's extremely hopeful for the others. Right There's two sides, two people groups that were talked about here in the book of Revelation. The implication is we are called to worship the Christ who is our God. Right the only, the only response to this picture of Jesus is that we worship him. He demands our everything. This is the normal response to those who truly encounter him. People that really encounter Jesus are people that worship him with their lives. Right? There aren't half-hearted Christians. There aren't aren't people that lack passion for Jesus that have really encountered him. The natural response, the normal response to someone who really encounters the gospel, it's a radical change. I'm a new creature, right? I'm empowered to fight sin in ways that I've never known possible. That's the normal response. And that's the response we see from John here as he bows and worships. And number three, we approach the future in victory. I mean, It's super encouraging that we go into the future with a family. We're not going in it alone. We're not going into the deep, dark basement by ourselves. We've got family who goes with us. But on top of that, we have a hero that goes before us, right? But the big encouragement is that we go into it with the victory already won. And that's what Jesus says here as he comforts John. Here's why he doesn't have to fear. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. We're guaranteed for our kids. In the end, we win with Jesus. We approach the future in victory. We win with Jesus. Number one, we are guaranteed deliverance from our greatest fears in life. Our greatest fears in life Jesus says, fear not, I am the first and the last. He's in control of all history. He controls all things at all times. So whatever we could fear in this life, we don't have to fear because Jesus controls all of it. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together, right? There's no leader, there's no enemy, anybody we could encounter in this earth, in this life that we should fear. They've all been created for Jesus. He controls all of them, controls all things, all times. He also goes on to say, fear not, I am the living one. I died and I am alive. John 16, 33 says that Jesus has overcome the world. So whatever fears we could have about this world, Jesus says, I've overcome all of the world. I've overcome all of it. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 reminds us that Jesus has defeated death, right? Like he's defeated death for us so that we no longer have that fear of death. Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I mean, death is our greatest fear in this life, right? Us dying, our loved ones dying, us us not having the things that we need to keep our loved ones alive. I mean, it's our greatest fear. And Jesus says, I've conquered that greatest fear. There's nothing that can scare you in this life because death is the greatest fear of this life and I've conquered it. I'm the living one. I died, I'm alive I told you earlier, it's the point of worship. Throughout the book of Revelation, when you see the church in heaven worshiping the lamb, they are worshiping him in such a way that they are drawing attention to the fact that he is alive and that he is resurrected. But number two, we're guaranteed deliverance from our greatest fears in death. He says, fear not, I have the keys to death and Hades. I hope that at some point during this study we can... um, Maybe do a study on specifically what is being referenced when the word Hades is mentioned. It parallels the Old Testament reference to Sheol. Um, I'm not totally confident that I can tell you exactly what I believe about Hades as far as is it a place, is it a state. Um, I think in general for what we need it to be today is that it's, it's what happens to us in the afterlife. Um, My limited knowledge makes me believe that it's where people are that aren't believers when they die. That Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord if we're a Christian. But there's also this aspect that people are put into hell for eternity at the final judgment and death and Hades are thrown into that lake of fire. And so, again, this may change the more I'm studying this in the book of Revelation. For now, I think death and Hades really is like the worst case scenario for an unbeliever right now until that day of judgment. And so Jesus is saying, I have the authority over death and I have the authority over who spends the now in Hades. That's huge, that's huge. He's essentially saying, I possess authority over death, which is the body, and over the afterlife, which is our soul. The scariest places possible, Jesus controls. Revelation six eight we said death and Hades come riding in on this horse no big deal Jesus has the keys to both of those things Revelation twenty verse thirteen Hades being tossed uh, tossed around Jesus has the authority Jesus is saying death listens to me and obeys me the Bible says that when Jesus comes back there's a time when he will speak and people will come out of tombs because Jesus speaks against death right he's going to raise some to to everlasting life some to everlasting death satan does not control when we die that's huge right satan doesn't kill anybody that god doesn't give him permission to take satan has no authority nothing in the book of revelation the beast the prophet these these monsters they have no authority over death they don't control when we die they don't possess that type of authority jesus's authority allows him to use death for gain that's what's huge about this Not only does Jesus control death, because he controls death, he can allow the death of an infant, the death of a husband, the death of a wife, the death of a child to be used for gain. For gain, for that individual, for the kingdom, for his purposes. Jesus uses death for good purposes. The implication, we're called to find encouragement that motivates our service. We're to find encouragement that motivates us to serve. That's what Jesus tells John here at the end. He says, don't fear. Here's the reasons not to fear. And then verse 19, write therefore the things you've seen. He says, "I I got a job for you, John. Don't be scared. I've got a job for you. I need you to serve. I need you to serve the church as well by writing these things down. We as believers should see this picture of Jesus. We should see what could be a scary, horrific scene, Jesus showing up in this form to bring judgment on this earth and find great encouragement that when he shows up, he's our friend, right? Like he's our friend. John 15, 14 and 15 says that Jesus is our friend, the one who has the keys to the scariest places possible. He's our friend. He was John's friend. John's our brother, Jesus is our friend. We're called to find encouragement. Application, if you have not submitted to King Jesus, you have great reason to fear. The application is to repent and trust him today. Jesus comes to die on the cross. He comes to pay for our sins, the sins that would send us to death, the sins that would send us to Hades, the sins that would send us to the lake of fire for eternity. Jesus comes to to control those things, to to own those things. He dies in our place to conquer those things for us. We repent, we trust in him, then we get to be on the good team. We get to transfer from darkness to light. Number two, as Christians, the greatest, most powerful being in existence is our friend. We can be encouraged by that even to our death. Our kids need to see Jesus as their best friend possible, but as the scariest figure possible if they're not following him. And when they're able to embrace that they're to live their lives aligned with the word of God, that they're to testify about the resurrected Jesus And when they're able to understand that may lead to their death and that it's okay, because the very one they're following, the very one they call friend, is the one who controls their death and controls the afterlife. It removes all fears. There's nothing to be scared of now at this point. He possesses everything. Our family worship questions for this week to kind of tie into this. Number one, what fears do we have about sharing Jesus with others? Maybe part of the problem that we're not suffering like we could or should is that we're not aligning ourselves with God's word like we should, and we're not testifying of the resurrected Jesus like we should. I think we would all admit we should talk about Jesus more to people. And I think we could all come up with some reasons why we don't. So I want us to talk about that within our family structures. What fears do we have about sharing Jesus with others? And number two, what promises has Jesus made to us to help us overcome those fears? Jesus says, fear not. There's no reason to fear so what are some of the fears that prohibit us from sharing Jesus like we should? and How can we squash those fears knowing that Jesus has made promises that would prohibit us from being fearful? Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this passage here in Revelation. We thank you so much for the truth that's contained here. We're thankful that before we see any of the difficulties, any of the trials, any of the future tribulation that's to come, that you made it very clear up front that we have no reason to fear, that the things that come riding into this earth, the things that try to control this earth and to seize control of this earth, they all fall under you. All things were made for you. So God, we're thankful that Jesus is a great hero, but he's a hero who's already won the victories that we need him to win. He's conquered death. He's conquered the afterlife. He's sealed us until he comes back. We praise you and thank you for those truths. God, I pray that it would invigorate us, that it would inspire us, that it would encourage us to endure to the end. God, protect us from from sin, protect us from the enemy that would seek to detract our witness, that would seek to knock us off the route that you've called us to. God, we know that the promise here is that if we're aligning ourselves with scripture and seeking to be obedient and seeking to tell others about you, that the enemy wants to stop that whether it's through sin and disqualifying us, whether it's through death and ending our presence here on this earth. God, I pray that we would be passionate to be obedient to you, to worship you, and that any fears that would come up would be removed when we remember this picture of you, that you're a God who controls everything, that has the keys to the scariest things possible, and that we now enjoy you as a friend. Help us to be faithful to the end. Help us to take the things that we're studying and learning and apply them into our life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's org.